Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. I start to think about what it means to to be like a father, a brother, a husband, that type of thing, and what kind of portrayal we are to the other males in our life, our sons, our nephews, uh, cousins. And I'm seeing this, this, the switch in how we're viewing what a real man should be. And there's no doubt what it's brought upon. It's brought upon society and, and what they mean by real man. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. And so women, before you run for the doors, this is for you too. And so if you have a son or a husband or an uncle or a cousin or any male in your life that has any influence or you have any influence over, this is for you as well tonight too. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about some myths surrounding men. The reason why I picked myths is everybody's got that one show that they like that just like really speaks to them. Like, man, if I could make a show myself, this would have been the show, you know, or maybe it's a movie or it's a song like this is my song, that type of thing. Growing up a science geek, there was a show that came out called Mythbusters. I don't know if you guys ever saw that or not. Yes, I see some arm pumps in the air. Awesome. We got some fans. Very good. All right. So Mythbusters was like a dream to me. It was these myths and urban legends that a group of scientists and engineers would put to the test just to see if they were real or not. They would actually tear them apart bit by bit to prove whether or not these were plausible or if they were denied. So it was a pretty cool show for me to watch. And I thought, man, what a better way to attack the myths of what it means to be a man than do the exact same thing. So on your paper tonight, you're going to see that there are eight myths about what it means to be a real man. What we're going to do is we're going to take those eight myths and we're going to tear them apart. And I'm going to show you exactly what the scripture says about those eight particular things. And hopefully, my hope is tonight that you will take this. And for all those men in your life and even yourself, men, that this will be an influence that you can use and realize what it is to be a real man. So the first one I'm going to start off is with an obvious one. Real man fits the image. What is the image of a man's society? So take your Christian hat off for just a second. Put on your societal hat here and think what does society portray as a real man? Think of commercials, movies, action flicks, that type of thing, right? Now it might be that lumberjack, you know, that's got the three foot long beard that's chopping down trees with his hand, (laughs) that type of thing. Or maybe it's that super sports athlete that's like good at everything, that's toned from head to toe and can jump 15 feet in the air. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's that jet setter, that multi-billionaire, trillionaire that's driving around in the fast cars with a beautiful woman next to him. Maybe that's what a real man is. But society gives you those images. It's because we all have a little bit of that in us innately. And they play on that. But what a Christian does is they take that and throw it in the trash and they look at what's important so once we have that all indoctrination from tv and movies and music on what a real man should be we have to start thinking about what does god say about that now i'm not going to tell you that i haven't fallen victim to that myself growing up as a kid we all did we all had these people we idolized for me and please don't laugh because i'm going to explain myself (laughs) my idol growing up in the 80s was hulk hogan all right. <laughs> Some more fist pumps. All right. We're all in this together. All right. Hulk Hogan was literally marketed as the ultimate man. That was his title, the ultimate man. In fact, if you ever seen Rocky three, he uses that line with Rocky. I'm the ultimate man versus the ultimate chump. All right. <laughs> so he says that. All right. 
that's what he was marketed as. Now, look, think, think about it. They were marketing this uh, middle-aged wrestler with a skullet going out there <laughs> and wrestling in the ring. And this was portrayed as the ultimate man to us, but we just went along with it because it was so skillfully done with advertising and promotion and everything else. Now, he wasn't my favorite wrestler, but I was like every other kid growing up. I, I, I idolized him. I remember one year for Christmas, my parents bought me, I kid you not, a Hulk Hogan physical fitness set that I got. It was two three-pound weights. It was a headband, a jump rope, and a flex grip. And somehow that was supposed to give me the physique of the Hulkster. As you can see, it worked. <laughs> but still, regardless, that's how much we were into wanting to be like Hulk Hogan. So 1986, he came to Phoenix. And back then on every wrestling show, they were called house shows where they only wrestled for the people in the city. There was an advertisement for it, and I begged my dad, please, 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 I want to go see Hulk Hogan. I want to go see Hulk Hogan. And my dad, being a great father he was, was like, okay, done. So I remember waiting him. We had, you actually have to go to the mall and buy tickets. You couldn't do it online. <laughs> and you waited there, and you got up and got the tickets. Fifteenth row from the ring. It was like a dream come true. And the music played, and it was a tag team match, and, and Hacksaw came out, <laughs> and then Hulk Hogan came out. Man, when he came out, I remember muscles on top of muscles. When he walked to the ring, just glistening like a, a Greek god <laughs> when he walked to the ring tore his shirt off, which by the way, they pre-cut for him, just so you know, because one time he tried to tear it, it didn't tear. How embarrassing is that? So they always had a little cut. So he tore off his shirt. Everybody was cheering. I'm like, oh, that's Hulk Hogan. That's the ultimate man. But towards the end of the, his career, not Hulk Hogan's, but who he was going to face, his opponent came out. And to this day, one of my luckiest things I ever got to experience in my life. He was old. He was almost done but it was the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant. Yes. He was magnificent. <laughs> Seven foot one, 550 pounds. When he walked to the ring, his hands were so big, he just pushed the air out of the way. <laughs> he stepped over the top rope, and he was, at, he was aged. He was towards the end of his career, but he walked up to Hulk Hogan, and Hulk Hogan looked like a dwarf compared to him. <laughs> standing up looking at him. It was amazing to see that here is this guy I idolized was not the biggest, was not the strongest, was not the most powerful. Somebody else was better. And that was my first time in life I realized that your idols aren't everything. <laughs> no matter how much you try, there is always going to be somebody bigger and better than you, more money than you, better looking than you, smarter than you. If that is what you're striving for, for your image in life, you will fail. 1 Samuel 16.6. This is when Samuel is trying to go find what he is going to bring as the next king to Israel. And by the way, if I haven't told you, I'm sorry, image number one, a real man fits the image. That's your title to write in there. So Samuel goes to Jesse and says, bring out your sons. i got to figure out which one of these is going to be the new king. And so Jesse brings out Eliab. And look what happens. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And if we know the story, what happens is he ends up picking the smallest brother of them all, which turns out to be King David and one of the greatest rulers of Israel. 
God is never, ever judging by the way a person looks, by what he has, by what he's accomplished in his life. It's so much more than that. It's what's inside. Ladies in here, those who are married and who are not married, I don't need to tell you that looks are a bonus, <laughs> but they're not what's important. Always, always look on the heart. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't pump weights if you want to. I'm not saying you can't go get a nice haircut, wear your nice clothes, do those type of things. Absolutely. In fact, we have a, a scripture here. I love this scripture, 1 Timothy 4, 8. For bodily exercise profit a little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of life that now is and of that which is to come. But he does say that exercise does profit a little, <laughs> so it's worth doing. It keeps you healthy, and when you're healthy and strong, you're able to serve more. You're able to do more things for God. So by all means, go pump those weights. Look your best you can. But if that is your focus, if that is what drives you, then you've missed the mark, very simply. No matter how you look, how tanned you are, how toned you are, how jacked you are, eventually it's going to fail you. I was watching a video tonight before <laughs> we left of a person I already know about. His name is Manfred Herbel. You've probably never heard of his name. But he was born in Austria in the same city that Arnold Schwarzenegger was born in. Manfred Herbel in 1992 recorded the record for the world's biggest biceps, 26 inches around. His arms were so big that he had to walk like this because he literally could not put them down to his side. He had to have special things made for him, like brooms that curved, so he could hold them with his hands to sweep. He's huge. You can look him up. You can see pictures of him. He wrote a book about having the world's biggest biceps. By the time it had gotten published, he was already been beaten by somebody else. <laughs> that quick. Everything he had worked for in his life since the time he was a child was now gone because somebody else took the crown from him. He entered in all these strongman competitions to be the biggest and strongest and best he could be, and he got in a car accident, and he couldn't do anything for two years and lost half of his muscle in the process. What are our goals in life as men? Is to be the biggest, the baddest, the strongest, the best looking that we can be, or is it to serve God and have that image shown to others? Psalms 73, 26, my flesh... And my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and my strength will fail. There's probably all of us, again, that grew up in the 80s that saw Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. You couldn't get much better than that, right? I have a picture of him in my garage at home. <laughs> I kid you not. He has lost almost all of the muscle that he once had in life. It's because we're designed to be that way. But for us, our strength in God never leaves. If we're faithful and devout, it only gets stronger. And it's much, much more important that our strength lies in his hands than it does in ours. Because he never forsakes us. So how should we look as the image that we should be? It's very simple. We have a real easy test. Is it the image of Christ? Isaiah 53, 2. He grew up before them like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that, would, that we should desire him. That's not saying that Jesus was an ugly man. It's just saying his focus was not on his appearance. His focus was not on, I need to look the best I can. 
I need to be the strongest, the quickest. Now, mind you, Jesus was no pushover. He was a carpenter. He was hauling heavy wood and lumber and working hard. He was probably pretty strong. But that wasn't his focus. And the scripture tells us, be like Jesus. A humbleness. A sense of knowing that everything around us that society tells us is how we should be crumbles and falls eventually. And only our strength and the Lord lasts forever. So we're going to go to myth number two here. And by the way, the truth for number one, if you haven't written it in yet, is a real man of God fits the image of Christ. A real man of God fits the image of Christ. Number two, a real man has the most toys. I'm going to take this off for a second. Sorry, I'm a walker. I don't know why I put this on here. But a real man of God has the most toys. There was a saying in the 80s, and there was a bumper sticker that was really popular at the end of the 80s, he who dies with the most toys wins. Do you guys remember that one? Thankfully, that's not around anymore. <laughs> but that was the thing. It was all about excess, right? Whoever makes the most in their life has the flashiest things. They are the ones that get all the glory. Um, men are competitive by nature. We want to keep up with the Joneses, and it's something that starts from the time we were young when we compare the things we have with all the other kids around us. I see that happen with my daughter right now. <laughs> she is looking at all the brands that everybody is wearing and the things like that, and that's just the way we were too as we grew up, so from the time we were young. But the truth is those who have more and more and more, as our society says, usually have less and less and less of God, and that's just the way it goes. Luke 12, 15 said, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It's right there. Then why do we try so hard to get those all the time? Why is that our goal in life? Why is that the litmus for our success? It's how much things we have. Now, I'm not saying you can't have nice things. Anybody that's been to my house knows that I have a lot of toys, literally. <laughs> so I'm a collector. But what is your focus? Do you leave your family behind so you can work a couple extra hours to afford that jet ski? Do you forsake your obligations that you have so that you can get a little bit more money here to buy that bigger screen TV because the 70 inch isn't enough and the 80 is coming out? What is your focus? Luke 12, 15, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I think about what that means for us and how we're teaching our kids. They're watching us all the time, all the time. What is our focus on? And, and I can tell you right now, I feel like sometimes I fail this in my own family. Life gets busy. There's things to do. There's work. There's school. Sometimes Angie will come to me and ask me, hey, do you want to play store? And I'm like, I don't have time to go to the store <laughs> right now. Can I get back to you? And then it's midnight and she's in bed. And I think, man, an opportunity missed that I won't ever get back right there. But it's not about getting things. It's about storing up treasures in heaven, as it has always been. We want to provide a nice quality for our family, but when it becomes the focus of our life, our minds and hearts no longer belong to God. We've given them away to something else. We've given them away to idols. Philippians 3, 18. For many whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the, Christ of cross, or the, of the cross of Christ. Excuse me. 
Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in the shame with mindset on earthly things. The part of that verse that really gets me is their God is their belly on there. It's all about what I want. It's the things I want. It's about sustaining myself. I want to go eat at the finest restaurant, so I need a better job. I need to work 60 hours instead of 40, pointing to myself on that one. I need more. Yes, I'm comfortable. God is taking care of everything I have, but what if he doesn't one day? I need to be prepared. Oh, we never say that out loud, right? (laughs) But it's in our head. It's in our head. So I'm just going to keep sweeping these things that are really important, that really that matter, like more time with God, more time with family. I'll sweep those under the rug, and I'll get back to these other things that matter because i got to get more, 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 and then I'll go back and pull up that rug and bring them back out when there's time. And that rug never gets pulled up, ever. We just keep going. If we make possessions our God, they will fail us, and they will destroy us. And our very souls will be lost. But if we, for one moment, can stop and think how rich we are through God, how rich we are, God says the things that lie up in heaven are nothing compared to what you have in this world. Then why are we striving for all these things in the world? Why is that our focus? He's already told me this is pales in comparison to what's up there. You want mansions? You want streets of gold? I got them. I got him. So why are you tarrying here with this? Because if I don't, society tells me I have failed. I have failed. God has never cared about society and what they think. The truth to this myth, a real man of God stores his treasures in heaven. So let's move on to our next myth here while we're writing. A real man plays the field. And I'm not talking about center field for the Red Sox. You guys know what I mean. A real man plays the field. Society tells us that marriage is an end to the good life. It should only occur when you're ready to settle down. Every form of media promotes sleeping around with as many women as possible, and maybe one day the right person might put all that behind you. This has never, ever been what God intended for us. Proverbs 18.22, excuse me, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Right there, marriage is a gift from God. But that is not what every single movie, TV show, song, everything we hear does not say that. Don't get tied down. Go have your fun. You're young. You know what's funny is sometimes when young people get married or they even get engaged, there's, there's people that go, how old are they? It's like, really? 20 years old. You're so young. Like they got a disease because they decided to get engaged. My mom married when she was 19 years old. My dad, 21. And they were married for 40 plus years before he passed. I think you got that right. But that's because they grew up as Christians, both of them. And they were looking for someone who fit the image of Christ. 
which is how it was supposed to always be. But we don't want that. Look at look at John 12. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, let me see here. I move my notes over to the thing here. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul is putting this in the best terms possible. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, 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 husbands listen to this, the husband does not have the authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a little time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There is also another reason to this. Not only is a wife a helper, somebody suitable, but God understands the desires of people. He understands that, and he is providing a way to use those desires in a positive, beautiful way. Husband and wife. It's not a consolation prize to get married. It's not. Now, if you choose to be single, there's nothing wrong with that. Paul even says, I wish that some of you were single like me. Because <laughs> there's other things that you can do. You can go out and do things that you can't always do when you have a wife or a family to help support God, to promote God and Christianity to other people. So he understands that too. But here he is saying, this is a beautiful thing that we have here. Young people, the scripture is telling us to date deliberately. Don't just go out and have fun and do whatever you want and no consequences because someone is going to get hurt in that equation. But look for the people that represent Christ. Look for the people who are open to God. Maybe the best first date you can have is right here. Bring them to church. Bring them here and say, hey, <laughs> you want to see what I'm all about? It's right here. And if they run for the hills, good. God did that for you. <laughs> he did. He separated the wheat from the chaff and said, go. <laughs> All right? But if they're open to it and said, hey, I can understand why this is important to you. Maybe they're worth a second date. <laughs> but date intentionally. Look for those people in your life that are going to support you and are going to love you. The truth is, a real man of God, this is your section to fill in here, a real man of God cherishes the union of marriage. Now, that's not what society is going to tell you. They will tell you, stay single as long as you possibly can, and then when you decide to get married, there's, that's fine. Look for somebody else. Now, we do tell that to Andrew. I say, when you're 45, you can get married, <laughs> although I'm, I feel that's going to happen before then, but... Look, look for people that are going to lift you up and not tear you down. Don't play games. Marriage is a gift from God. So let's go to our next myth here. Number four. A real man relishes in his fame and power. Now, in everybody's life, we've probably dreamed of being famous at some point. There's a, a certain inner desire that we all have to be famous, for people to cheer for us. Uh, at least recognize us for something special. We strive for fame and recognition, and our life is controlled by what other people think of us. 
Now, this is an open door for denying God because we crave the acceptance of man over ourselves. Now, in the realm of Pharisees, if you were a friend of a Pharisee, that was actually a pretty good thing at the time. Now, Pharisees were terrible people, but you were in the inner crowd if you were accepted by the Pharisees. You wanted to be that. You wanted that prestige of being around them, being accepted by them. John 12, 42 shed some light on that. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's more important that I be in there in the synagogues with the Pharisees where my name is seen and heard, and they're like, oh, that's that guy. He's the cool guy that hangs out with those Pharisees in the synagogue because that gives me fame, and fame gives me power, and now I'm somebody important. Meanwhile, in their heads, they're like, this Jesus guy is right. Everything he's saying is right. Everything he's telling us is right. He knows what's going on. I believe him, but I don't want to get kicked out. So I'm going to stay over here with these guys because fame and power is more important. So important that they would deny the Son of God knowing he was right. Is that any different than what we do sometimes? I'm not telling you that there's something wrong with being recognized for something great you did. Absolutely. You make an accomplishment, uh, something at work or something that you've worked hard for that you have and somebody says oh good job I'm really proud of you there's nothing wrong with that but what happens is when that causes you to put your focus off of what Christ would give you praise for then you've completely lost it you've completely lost it 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 10 but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before the outsiders and be dependent on no one. Live quietly. That is completely the opposite of what society tells us. Do not live quietly, big and bold. Live out loud. Remember, that was a big one for a while. Live out loud. Let people see you for who you are. But who are you when you do that? Are you living out loud for Christ? And I'm not saying something pharisaical where you're praying and out in there and look at me, look at me praying for God. It's not what he's talking about. It's not what he's talking about. Living out loud for Christ is not denying him. Living a life for him. Finding every opportunity to speak about him finding every opportunity to take the focus off yourself and to put it on a Christ. And that's hard to do. Number one, because sometimes we just don't think to do it. We haven't trained ourselves to that point. Like, here's the opportunity. Oh, thank you. Yes, I, I did accomplish all these things, but to the grace and glory of God, or else I wouldn't have gotten any of that done. There's your door. Sometimes we just don't think to do it. Good job. Thanks. That's it. We miss those opportunities to live out loud for God. But when it comes to ourselves, live quietly. Humbleness, that's what Jesus did. Every chance he got, he put his glory on God. Even one saying, God is greater than I. 
on that. Jesus himself. The truth is, for your notes, a real man of God seeks approval of God, not man. It is much, much more important to see your name written in a book of life than on a marquee. It is much, much more important to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant, than it is for your coworkers to say, way to go. Great promotion. Fantastic job. Beautiful house. That's the things that we should strive for. Now, I had to throw this one in here because this is a deep one for us. Myth number five in your notes, a real man never cries. That is something that I have heard since I was a little kid. It's kind of funny because at my school, when if a child gets hurt or something like that, I'm always the one that usually has to make the phone calls to home. It's just part of the job. So I'll call and say, yeah, little Johnny was running on the playground and didn't look and ran into the slide and got a big bump on the head. If it's the mom, I get, oh, no, is he okay? Yeah, he's good. If it's a dad, it's, do you cry? <laughs> Almost every time, I kid you not. No, he didn't cry, and he's okay. <laughs> I'll throw that in there, too. That's because we want our kids to be tough, right? We want our sons to be tough. You don't show emotion. Dry your eyes. That's something I've heard people say for when somebody starts crying. Man, that's taken away from something really important that God established here. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, then all of us suffer together. If one member is honored, then all rejoice together. We were meant to feel sadness for each other. We were meant to suffer together through things. I think of Job in the Bible, the worst time of his life, when his friends came and gave him the worst possible advice he could have. And Elihu came and just said, I'm going to sit here with you. And that's it. We were meant to suffer together. We were meant to share each other's tears. We were meant to feel for each other. This is from God. Mourning for someone or with someone over loss or suffering is not only practiced throughout the Bible, but was even done by our Lord himself. And we know the scripture. It's, it's famous. It's the one I always memorized as a kid before church. So I could make sure I had it. John 11, 35, Jesus wept. I'm done. <laughs> that was my, my scripture for that. So, But the, the real beauty of this scripture is later on. So let's read the whole thing together. John 11, 34, and he said, where have you laid him talking about Lazarus? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Here's the important verse in this passage. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus didn't do it because, oh, my friend's dead. I'm supposed to be sad. He loved him so much that his death physically changed him to the point where he had to weep. These aren't tears that you wipe aside and say, I'm going to miss him. It says weeping, weeping for his friend that died. Enough to where everybody looked around and said, man, Jesus really loved this guy. That's beautiful. And we're telling our kids that's not okay? That's not okay to feel like that, to care like that for somebody? Now, I'm Irish. We got a lot of weird traditions. I'm just going to be honest. A lot of weird traditions. 
When babies are born, we sew a little piece of iron in their clothing to keep the fairies away. I kid you not. That's one of them. If you're walking out on a path in the morning and a redhead comes towards your way, you're supposed to turn around and go home. That's another one. But we also have this thing in our culture that died out for the most part in the 1950s, but they were called keeners. If you've ever heard of the word keener, these were professional mourners. They would actually be hired by a family at a funeral, and they would sit towards the front, and at a certain time they would come up, and there was usually two of them, and one would stand at the foot of the body, and one would stand at the head of the body, and they would look at each other like, okay, and they would go, ah, and they would cry. And what it did is it made everybody realize this is okay to do right now. And so everybody would jump in and start crying with them. And when the keeners were done, they would sit down, the tears would go off. I thought, man, how weird is that? This tradition goes all the way back to Israel, back to Greece. It's been done by lots of cultures. But how weird is that? That we had to pay people at one time to teach us when it was okay to cry and when it wasn't. But God shows us throughout scripture people that mourn and wept because they cared through it. We don't cry because we're weak. We cry because we care. We cry because we love. We cry because the scripture tells us that there is a time to mourn. And we must suffer together as a family in Christ. Men, have you ever cried in your life? Good. That means you cared about something. Have you ever cried because somebody else cried? Good. That meant you shared their suffering, their pain with them. They meant something to you. Here's the truth for you to write in right now. A real man of God cries because he cares. Men, teach your sons, your brothers, your nephews, your cousins, yourself, that it's okay to cry. It's okay to feel. It's okay to care. Take off the John Wayne exterior, put on the image of Christ, and feel for someone. All right, we're getting down to the end, guys. So here we go. Number six here, a real man has the last say. And I think every man in here could probably point to themselves at one time in their life where this is something that affects us. Culture tells us that we should do unto others as they have done to us, except do it worse and make it longer. Hollywood bombards us with movies about getting revenge, and though often entertaining, they completely miss the mark on what a Christian man should do when wronged. I just out of curiosity, I went online and I said, I wonder how many movies about revenge came out in the last 10 years. 35 pages of movies, TV shows, and songs about revenge. Not 35 movies, 35 pages. I couldn't even read through them all. So... We are fascinated with people not getting over on us, getting our say for it. We don't want to be a punk, so we're not going to let you do to us without us doing back to you. That's the myth. Matthew 5.38 says, You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. If anyone's to sue you and to take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have the responsibility to defend ourselves and our families. We do. We have the responsibility to take care of our own and each other in here. We do. 
But what this does means is we go into a very dangerous path of taking things into our own hands that should be given to God to handle. And that's where we make the wrong turn on all of this. We have a saying in our house that I always try to teach Angie. I always say civility first. Civility first in everything. Handle it with your words the best you can. And if that doesn't happen, then there's other things to consider. But there's nothing with, wrong with walking away. Walking, is not, walking away is not a sign of weakness. It's actually something that Christ did quite frequently throughout the scripture. When he knew in his head that he had all the power in the world to crush anyone that came up against him, he would choose to walk away. Yet it is so hard for us to do that. I'm not going to let you get me, not without getting you back. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving of one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It's not about getting even. It's about getting God. That's it. There's a saying that goes around, and it is a very true saying, the first to the cross wins. If somebody has a bee from me and I decide to walk away and go get on my knees and pray to my God, guess what? You won that fight. You did. You won that fight because you're saying, I'm going to take the vengeance that I was going to seek and I'm putting it in your hands, God. Do with it what you want. If you decide to heap burning coals upon that person's head, that is up to you. If you decide to give them forgiveness and love and they in turn give that back, fantastic. You've won another soul. But the strength is in letting go. The truth is, for your next part of your notes, a real man of God leaves vengeance to the Lord. And that does not make for a great Hollywood movie. I doubt we're going to see Liam Neeson and leave vengeance to the Lord too. But... It is how we live our lives and how we should live our lives. Two left here. Number seven. Oh, ladies, you're going to love this one. <laughs> a real man never asks for help. <laughs> That's the big thing. We can do it on our own. Or oftentimes we can do it by ourselves. It's more fitting. I can't tell you how many times I would bust open that piece of Ikea furniture well, this looks like this goes here. <laughs> this looks like that goes there. And then when I'm done, I'm like, everything is upside down. So fortunately, I worked in assembly many, many years ago before I ever got into education. I worked as an assembly manager in a store. And we would have uh, furniture and lawnmowers and barbecues, you name it. And the first thing I found out early was the best thing was to take the instructions and tape them on the wall and follow them page by page. And eventually we would get through. Now, that is not the manly thing to do. Society says we don't need to do that. You're, it should be innate, right? I know how to put together a barbecue grill. I'm a man. That's what I do. But what happens more often than not is when we don't follow instructions, things go bad. Boy, is not a metaphor for our work as Christians right there. When we don't follow instructions, things do not turn out right. Our instructions being the word of God. But it's hard to ask for help. The old uh, joke used to be asking for directions, right? Man, never stopped to ask for directions. The best thing I ever created in our life was Google Maps. Where's that at? Doot, doot, doot. Okay, I got it. Never have to worry about stopping again at a gas station to pull out a map and ask where to go. Okay? And, and my wife is laughing because she knows how bad I am at it right now, so I'm just telling that. 
But Genesis 2, verse 18 says something different. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. What am I going to make suitable for him? Somebody to stand by him? No, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. God realized in his own creation that he made, there's something missing. Man needs help. He cannot do this on his own. And we have help from each other and help from God. Galatians 6.2. This is, this is something that goes both ways, forgiving help and asking for help. Galatians 6.2. Carry each other's burdens, as in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, then they deceive themselves. I like the way that's worded. We often do that. It's okay to ask for help. God tells you to do it. Something I struggle with, for sure. For sure. We have this in our head, this little radar, that I failed if I have to go to somebody and ask them for help. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing if I have to go to somebody and ask them for help. Things I've struggled with in my own life. But when we do that, we are, what does it say here? Fulfilling the law of Christ. When we put our burdens on each other and we lift each other up. We are fulfilling the law of Christ. It's okay to ask for help. The truth is, right there for your notes, a real man of God seeks the love and support of others. That's beautiful. That's beautiful that we have that in God. That he put that fail safe in there for us. That when things are too hard, things are are too tough, that we can get on our knees and pray to him to help us first and then ask each other to lift our burdens. That's a beautiful thing. And then we'll go to our last point here for tonight. A real man rules his house. Now I save this for last because this is probably the most controversial on the list. A real man rules his house. God placed man as the head of the family to maintain a household devoted to God. But often this role is distorted into what I say goes, dictatorship. Where the wife is looked down on or disrespected or considered a lesser being and all respect is removed from the home. But the scripture tells us something different. Husbands, remember 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Give honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. The weaker vessel here is not talking about something that's easily broken. It's talking about something of value. Looking through past scholars and historians on what this actually means is in the home you would have your everyday vessels that would be made out of wood and things like that that were used just to pour wines or foods or things like that. But there were always something special like your fine china, right? It was more porcelain-like, alabaster, things like that. Those were weaker vessels, something easily to be broken, but something that was far more valuable than your everyday wear that was rough and tumble. What the scripture is saying here is not only protect it, but hold on to it because it's something of value and something to be cherished. That is your job as a husband. 
It's not because they are lesser people. What does it say? You are both heirs to God. You're heirs to his kingdom. So husbands, it is not a position of power. It is a position of responsibility that is given to you to carry that weaker vessel, that valuable person in your life with all the safety you can. Every team has a captain. (laughs) And it's usually the captain that gets the blame when the team goes down. It really is. God set his hierarchy in the scripture of what it should be. God is the ruler, and God is head over man, and man is head over wife. And the reason why is because there has to be somebody to make the ultimate decisions in the house. Man, your responsibility is to always make those decisions for Christ. Always. That is a position of responsibility, not power. The scripture doesn't say what I say goes and forget about you and you don't get any say into this. No, it's just the opposite. Weigh everything together and then make the right decision for God. That is your job as a man, as a husband. Galatians 3, 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. That is what the scripture tells us right now. God does not care of man or woman when it comes to your soul. It does not matter. So men, if you feel like you have a position of power in your house, I'm the one that's in charge. I get to make all the decisions. Yeah, I'll listen to her, but I'm the one that's in charge. If you've done that, you've failed. It's done. You've already lost it. Because if you have not made God the ruler of your house, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. We're all the same in the eyes of the Lord. And when that position of responsibility is given to us, we must realize that we are not indeed the ruler of the house. 1 Corinthians 11.3, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. The truth is, the line to fill in for you, a real man of God knows the Lord is the ruler of his house. And that's it right there. Husbands, treat your wife with respect. They are fellow heirs to the throne of God. Love them. Treat them as something important. Treat them as something valuable. To where if you stop for just one second and take your eyes off of loving them and cherishing and nourishing them, they could break something that beautiful and special. That is our job, our responsibility as fathers and as husbands in the household. Everything we said tonight, the beginning was all myths. Everything that society portrays, everything society tells us how we should be, it's almost unequivocally the complete opposite of what scripture says. So our job as men is to be the image of Christ. That's our litmus test right there. It's the image of Christ. Are we walking as him? Women, I want to say something to you too tonight. Thank you for listening to all this, and I hope that you can pass this on to sons, brothers, cousins, uncles, husbands, Look at your husbands with love. Look at them with love. Is your husband a hero? Because 
he's got the big muscles and he drives the fast car and he makes the most money and he provided you the best house and you guys take the greatest vacations and life is exactly what it says it should be on TV? Is your husband a hero? Or does your husband work hard for your family? Does he respect you and love you? Does he take the time to pray with you? Does he take the time to study God with you? Does he take the time to bring others to Christ? Does he have a heart that's good? Because if he does, you got something way better than a hero. You got a man of God. And that's what you should always be striving for. Always be striving for. Let's bust those myths. No more. No more. We know how to teach our sons now. We know how to teach our brothers. We know how to teach fellow Christians how to be as men. So tonight I ask, let's say a prayer together and pray for men. Dear Lord in heaven, we're weak. We often get influenced by what society says is the right thing to do. It's so easy. It's so alluring. It's, it's the status quo. It's the mold that we fit into. But Lord, we know it's not what you want for us. We know that from the time of Adam, you have set the benchmark of what it is to be a man of God. Lord, we pray for humbleness in our lives. We pray that we spend more time with families and brothers and sisters. That we stop striving after money and start striving after relationships with you, Lord. That we're not afraid to show emotion for the people that we love and that we care about. That we understand our position in the home as a position of responsibility, not of power, Lord. That lies in your hands. So tonight, as we leave, we pray that we leave as men of God. And that we go out and as touch as many lives as we possibly can, Lord. And we know we can do that through your grace and mercy. Please be with us, and I will be done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. I want you to notice what Ryan just did. Um, he looked at the culture and then looked at God's word. and corrected the mindset based on scripture. This is another reason everybody in this room, but I'll follow Ryan's lead here, men, gotta be in God's word. You're gonna combat what the culture says about you, about your kids, about your wife, about your family, about what masculinity is, about if it's toxic or if it's beneficial or whatever, start with the Word of God. Start there and be defined by what God has given us, the instructions He's given us, and not by what the pressure of our cultural environment would say. God's Word is that important.